John chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 to 9. John 4, 1 to 9. The woman of Samaria. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for giving us your holy word. We pray that we'll understand this holy word for our sanctification, for our growth, for our knowledge, true knowledge of who you are. Draw us near to you as we seek to understand you better by what you've revealed to us. Fill us with your spirit and guide us into all the truth. In the name of Christ, amen. At the beginning of this chapter, we have a further transition between this part and the previous part of chapter 3. Remember, at the end of John chapter 3, John the Baptist, who had been baptizing and making many disciples, he had a controversy that arose toward the end of the chapter, chapter 3, where some of his disciples noticed that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, and they were wondering what to do about that. And John, in the rightful and proper way, John, he puts himself in the right position. He humbles himself and teaches his own disciples not to discuss, not to quarrel or have a conflict over this matter. He says in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. John is putting himself in his rightful position in relation to Christ. He is the forerunner of Christ, but he's not superior to Christ and he's not even equal to Christ. Christ must increase and he must decrease. And then in 331 to 336, he highlights the great, uh, the great greatness of and the gravity of believing in Christ. Christ sent from God from heaven down to earth and he is superior to all other messengers of God because he is the ultimate messenger of God. He is the high priest and the apostle of our confession. That's who Jesus Christ is. Well, this transition between John, John who immersed in water, and Jesus is further happening here in chapter 4, briefly, though, at the beginning of the chapter. Then for the rest of the book of John, mostly it's going to be detailing the ministry of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
verse 3, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Let's notice with this expression, verse 1, the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus knew, when he knew that the Pharisees had heard. Now, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making more disciples than John, Jesus knew that it was time for him to leave that region of Judea where John was and where Jesus was. And now the Pharisees are hearing about this. And he wants to leave that area, that area of controversy, that area of popularity. He wants to leave that area and go to Galilee. And I say he wants to leave for those reasons. He wants to leave because there was this conflict brewing and John is doing what's right. He is minimizing himself, humbling himself in relation to Christ. He's doing the right thing and he's also preaching Christ. But then also Jesus wants to ensure that this conflict does not overflow since the Pharisees are now going to be involved, since they heard about it all, and they heard about the baptisms. They heard about what Jesus was doing, and more people were going to him. That's one reason for the conflict. But I believe that there is another reason, and that is the popularity issue, the popularity issue, and what might result from that. Why do I say the popularity issue? Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In this chapter, he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. He fed them miraculously. When they were fed, notice their reaction, the popular reaction of the people. John 6, 15. John 6, 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. When he saw that they wanted to take him by force, the multitudes wanted to take him by force, make him king, meaning an earthly king, and overthrow the Romans. When he knew that they wanted to do that, he withdrew again. It says, he withdrew again, isolated himself again, and went away all alone to the mountain. And I think this is probably what he's trying to avert here as well in John chapter 4. He wants to go into Galilee. Now, in leaving Judea, he had celebrated the feast. He had been there alongside John. And now he wants to go to Galilee. He ends up in Galilee in John 4, John 4, 46. By John 4, 46, he's in Galilee. He's not there yet for the most part in this chapter, but that's where he's headed. So while he's heading to Galilee, he's going to pass through Samaria. He's going to pass through there. Now, Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Even Isaiah in Isaiah 9 predicted that that would happen. But Galilee was the place where Jesus was brought up. Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, was in Galilee. He was brought up there, Luke 4, 16. But also, Galilee is the place of Jesus' ministry because the city of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, that city, was his homestead during his ministry. That's where he mingled and mixed mostly up there in the 
region of Galilee near the Sea of Galilee. So that's what Galilee is. If we think of this, think of it like this. Jerusalem is the furthest south of these major places. Jerusalem, the capital of Judea in the south. Then above Judea is Samaria, adjacent, just right above it, north of it, is Samaria. Samaria, the city, and Samaria, the province or the region, Samaria. It's known as the capital is known as Samaria, but also the area is known as Samaria. And then above Samaria, north of Samaria, is Galilee. And Jesus was going there. That's what is happening in this uh, chapter and the sequence of events. We'll speak more of these regional issues. But also, there's a clarification. Why is he leaving? Remember the dispute, the conflict. Verse 2 says, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Jesus himself was not doing the personal baptisms. His disciples were doing the personal baptisms, the actual baptisms. We spoke about that before when we were in John 3, 22 to 30, that it's likely that Jesus did not do it in order to avoid, in order to avert the potential that somebody would say, or many people would say, I was baptized by Jesus himself. You were baptized by somebody lesser. In order to avoid all of that, remember 1 Corinthians 1, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians is devoted to this point do not create a conflict as to who baptized you, as to who you are a follower of or who teaches you. Don't make a point or an issue of those things. The whole of our faith is resting on Christ, the word of Christ and him as our head. He is the head of the body of Christ. We should focus on Christ, not whose party you are a part of. Not that. Don't create conflicts like that. So, John clarifies in verse 2 that point. Further, verse 4, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass because that was the middle region, the middle territory, Samaria. The way he's using this word Samaria is in terms of a province or a state or a region, a territory. That's the way he's using this word, Samaria. Now, a word of clarification or a word of background and explanation. What is this place? And why is this place in the Bible like this? In 1 Kings chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 16, the city in Samaria, the city of Samaria, is or it becomes the capital of, it becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. After the time of Saul, David, and Solomon, there was a division when Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. And temporarily for some years, Jeroboam was king of the northern kingdom and his capital was elsewhere. But then after some time, another king in the north became king and he decided to transfer the capital from one place to this place from this point onward known as Samaria. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 24. 
This is referring to King Omri, king of the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. Verse 24, 1624, And he, Omri, bought the hill Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. That's why, or that's when this city or hill, this mountain, Samaria, becomes the capital. And from this point until the northern kingdom is destroyed, Samaria, the city Samaria, is the capital. However, over time, that region, the whole region was called Samaria. It was known as Samaria. And in that region, Samaria, um, sometimes the prophets of the Old Testament, be, being poets they are, as they are, they would not use one word alone whenever they are referring to a city or referring to a region. They use different words. Sometimes they will call the northern kingdom Israel. Sometimes they will call it Jacob. They will call it Joseph. They will call it Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. They will call it Samaria. They will call it like that, the northern kingdom. And why Samaria? Why that word? Because the capital was Samaria. So similar to the United States, we have Washington, D.C., sometimes just called Washington, but we also have Washington State, right? Washington State. Or there is New York City, simply often called New York, or there's New York State, also called New York. That's similar to what's happening here with this word Samaria. Then, verse 5. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, notice that, a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. He, Christ, he came to a city of this region, Samaria, and the specific name of the city is Sychar. Now, this Sychar may be a separate city from the city Shechem, but Shechem, the city, that's a city that's more known, well-known in the Old Testament. Everybody knows if they have, uh, have read the Old Testament, they know that there is a city, Shechem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, especially Abraham and Jacob, they are known to have dwelt there at Shechem. So whether it's the same city or another city, a smaller town next to Shechem, we do know that it's in Samaria. There's no doubt about that, even among scholars who disagree on the exact location of Sikar. It calls it here a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. A par the parcel of ground that he gave to his son, Joseph. We learn of Jacob obtaining it, acquiring that from Genesis 33. So Genesis chapter 33. From Genesis 33, 18. Genesis 33, 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand 
of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohei Yisrael, meaning God the God of Israel, the altar's name. Well, when Jacob returned, remember he left the land of Canaan for 20 years. When he returned, he came and settled here, right there to Shechem, the city, and he bought a parcel of land there and pitched his tent. So he dwelt there for some time in that place. Further, we read about this place and its relationship to Joseph in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. And also toward the end of the chapter. Joshua 24, 32. Joshua 24, 32. It says, Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. They became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, this is making reference to Joseph's sons inheriting it because the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh possessed a lot of that northern territory in Samaria, in the region of Samaria, especially Ephraim. So they became the territory of Joseph's sons. Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, possessed their tribes, possessed territory in the northern kingdom. So when it says in John chapter 4 that it's the parcel of ground that Jacob acquired, Jacob acquired, and that he gave to his son Joseph, that is John the Apostle putting these passages together from Genesis and Joshua. Further, it tells us, it tells us in verse 6, and Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well. That means, remember, Jacob had many flocks and herds. So he had to have a reliable source of water because he was a very wealthy man. Not only did he have gold and silver, he had many flocks and herds. And he was able to buy that piece of land, right? So Jacob's well. We don't hear or read of Jacob's well or the well of Jacob in that precise terminology in the Old Testament, but there are hints of it. There are hints of it in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33. When Moses blesses the tribes of Israel, when he blesses them, he names the tribes and pronounces a specific blessing for each one. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 13, 33, 13, he says, And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew, and from the deep lying beneath. He blesses Joseph with God's blessings for the land from the dew of heaven, but also the deep 
beneath the deep, the waters under the earth, he means, right? Chapter 33, verse 28, 33, 28. So Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine, his heavens also drop down dew. There also, specifically to Jacob, Jacob establishing perhaps this fountain or this well, and the blessing is given to Jacob in general, in, to Jacob in general, he, that he has a fountain and he has the dew of heaven to bless his land. That's a general blessing, yes, but the specific one to Joseph would be in 33.13. That is perhaps where Jacob's well originated. We do know it had to be at the time of the patriarch Jacob, and then it was known to be that way in the time of Moses later, a few hundred years later. John 4, 6, John chapter 4, verse 6. It says that Jesus was wearied from his journey and was sitting thus by the well. He was wearied from his journey. Jesus, though he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, he did have the limitations of human nature. He slept, he ate, he drank, and even here, he was wearied. He was wearied from his journey. This is pointing out and showing that he actually possessed flesh. Remember John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. It's necessary to be reminded of his human nature, his perfect human nature, though limited human nature, because one of the arguments of the scriptures is that if he's not human, he cannot be our savior. If he's not divine, he cannot be our savior. And if he's not human, he cannot be our savior. And over the years, even in the time of the apostles, either one or both of these doctrines would be denied or contradicted by false teachers. They would either deny the divinity of Christ or they would deny the humanity of Christ. But that's impossible. He came and he humbled himself. He humbled himself to taking the form of a slave or a bondservant. He took the form of a slave or a bondservant in human nature or in human form. He came, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, teaches us that he came like that, he, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He came like that. So when Jesus has this need, he is weary, and not only is he weary, it says in verse 6, it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, according to John's reckoning in this book of John, when he's using these words, the sixth hour, he means, according to the reckoning at the time, which would be starting at 6 a.m. to noon. So the sixth hour would be, it would start at 6 a.m., that would be the first, and then all the way to noon would be the sixth hour. So it's noontime, and later we know, we, later we know in, for, from verse 8, his disciples went into the city to buy food. So it's time to eat and drink. It's lunchtime. That's why there is a pause here. Now, that which is a 
natural reason to pause or to break the journey becomes a platform, becomes an occasion to have a spiritual conversation. And this is true of all of life. Jesus will model this perfectly in this chapter that a physical, actual, practical occasion or a need or a want becomes the platform, becomes the, uh, the springboard to bring up a spiritual conversation. Jesus will be the master teacher in this chapter. This is, he's modeling this for us to do as well. So, what happens in verse 7? There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. A woman of Samaria comes out. Now remember, it's noontime. Noontime and the heat of the day, this would probably have been a few months after the Passover. So let's say it is hot season. It's likely hot season. It's not the normal thing for women to draw water in the heat of the day. Normally, they will draw water in the morning and in the evening. Morning and evening, but not usually in the heat of the day. But she does go in the heat of the day. We're not told why. If there is a reason for doing so in the middle of the day, it may be because she was a woman of ill repute. Perhaps she was a woman of ill repute and she didn't want to be the source or the center of the gossip of the town with other women mingling with other women because we do know that she was with a man who was not her husband according to verses 16 to 18. She was with a man who was not her husband and so in that way, she would have been frowned upon by the other women who would, would have either been single or married, but not committing fornication or adultery. Well, that she does come. And so she is all alone. And we also know Jesus is all alone. Verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They left him there. They went away. So the 12 went away into the city. So this well likely being a source for the herds and the flocks likely would have been away from the metropolis part of the city and more in the rural area or in that region. So they walk away in enough time for Jesus to hold this conversation which takes place from verse 7 until the disciples return later in verse 27 and following. So Jesus and this woman are alone at the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, in an open place. That's where they are, holding this conversation. And Jesus naturally desires to drink water, but his concern is not water itself. In fact, it doesn't say she actually um, gave it to him that he drank it, was refreshed, and said, thank you, have a good day. It doesn't end like that. The main purpose in asking her for water to drink was not the water itself, but to offer to her the well of water springing up to eternal life. That was his real motive. He had a bigger, greater spiritual 
motive for asking for this water. Verse 9. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? Then your Bible perhaps has a parenthetical sentence, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It is um, a matter of uh, interpretation. Did the woman say this, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, or did John say it? I think it's better to take it as John saying it. John saying it as a clarification to reiterate the implication of her question. Because her question is, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And just in case we don't know the situation in those times, if we don't know the cultural situation in those times, the animosity that Jews and Samaritans had toward one another, just in case we don't understand that, know that from the implication of her question, John the Apostle clarifies that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Firstly, I believe that he is generalizing here. He's not speaking in absolute terms. When John the Apostle says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, I don't believe he's saying that they never ever talk to each other. They never ever deal with each, with each other. They don't deal with each other in business or in politics. They don't do anything like that. I don't think he means that. And the reason I say that is we have two prominent exceptions to that that you may remember. We have Jesus mentioning the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, right? The Good Samaritan helped the Jew. So it wasn't beyond a Samaritan to have some humanity in him to see a man beaten up and robbed by, by thugs and lying down there by the roadside, right? So he had humanity and he did help him. And Jesus is acknowledging that there are some Samaritans like that. Even in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, the other example is the 10 cleansed lepers. The 10 lepers who were cleansed by Christ. And among the 10, one of them was a Samaritan. And that Samaritan came came back to Christ to give thanks to him and glory to God, right? And the other nine who were Jews did not come back. You see? So they're also, they mixed with each other in that situation. And one last example is in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, after the day of Pentecost, death, resurrection, burial, ascension of Christ, um, all of that happened. And a few years later, Philip is sent by God to preach in Samaria. He goes and he has a good reception there. The Samaritans hear the gospel and they believe in Acts chapter 8. So it's not an absolute statement that there was no interaction whatsoever between Jews and Samaritans. I think John is just generalizing and saying, we try to avoid each other. We don't like each other. We have animosities toward each other. Now let's elaborate on why there would have been this animosity, this conflict, generally speaking, between Samaritans and Jews. I believe that there are a few reasons for that. The one reason 
for an animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans would have been because of the two kingdoms, right? We said that the two kingdoms occurred or existed at the time of the death of Solomon when Rehoboam became king of Judah and then Jeroboam became king of the northern tribes. So from that time, there would have been this distrust and disdain for one another because now, though we weren't all in one kingdom, all 12 tribes, now we are separated. Now we worship different gods. Now our king doesn't want us to go to Jerusalem to worship. Our king has established a new priesthood and a new festival and new idols in Bethel and Dan. And we're supposed to stay in the north. You know, for those reasons, there would have been conflict and animosity. Another reason, another reason we find in 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. In this chapter, the northern kingdom called Israel or Samaria, they were destroyed in 722 BC by the foreign nation, the foreign kingdom or empire of the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire in Mesopotamia came and invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom and the northern tribes. They didn't wipe out all of the people. Some of them they exiled into their empire. Others of them they let remain there. And then they caused foreigners from conquered kingdoms of the Assyrian Empire conquered kingdoms, they took them out, they uprooted them from their own native soil and brought them into the northern kingdom of Israel, into Samaria. The Assyrians did so. The Assyrians did so. For example, 2 Kings 17, 24. 17, 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria, in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. See there? We have foreigners coming by force, being uprooted from their homelands and brought into Samaria, into the cities of Samaria, meaning the northern kingdom of Israel. That's where they are now living. Then, when they are living there, these foreigners... Do they worship the God of Israel? Do they worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? No. Notice um, what happens. Verse 25. And it came about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them, because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. The king of Assyria has a resolution, verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places 
which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. And then the names of their idols are mentioned. Now what do we have? We do have a priest who used to live in the north. He sent back to the north, to Samaria, to teach the new inhabitants how they should fear the Lord. However, what do we have now going on? We have a mixture. We have syncretism. We have ecumenicalism. We have, yeah, I like this part about my religion and I like that part about your religion, so I'm going to adopt both of these parts and make up my own personal worship of God or gods. That's what we have happening here. We have a mixture of a religion going on in the north. So even though the north had this priest come, the people learned some things that were true, but not all the things that were true, and they did not adopt all the things that are true from the Word of God. They had a mixed, perverted, diluted religion. That's what they had. So that would be another source, because the true priests were primarily in the southern kingdom of Judah, and that's where they more likely, a higher percentage of the people, would have had access to the truth and follow the Lord correctly, but not in the north. In the north now, we have a smidgen of truth, but uh, a smothering of corruption, falsehood. That's what we have in the north. That's not the only problem that would have caused a conflict between north and south. A further one takes place in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. By this point in Israel's history, Israel and Judah's history, we are now about 450 B.C. 450 B.C. By this point, even the southern kingdom has been destroyed by the Babylonians. Even the southern kingdom has been destroyed. Now, they are very much in a precarious situation, even the southern kingdom. But by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Persian kings, now the Persian empire, ruling the world at that part of the, that part of the world at that time, the Persian empire permits the people of Judah, the Jews, to return to their homeland and build up their city, build up their temple, and re resume living there, okay? So exiles could return to their homeland. And they are attempting that in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But who is opposing them? Who's opposing these people? Notice it says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? Even the burnt ones? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Okay? So this is the mockery and ridicule they are experiencing from whom? 
Sanbalat, who lives there in that area. Also, it says the men of Samaria, he contacted them, spoke to them. And also in verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, which the Ammonites live on the eastern side of the Jordan, but they have been fat and happy. They have been happy campers, even though the Persians are controlling them, they are in the good books of the Persians, and they don't want any of their situation, their commerce, their religion, the people, the influence, the men of power, the men of wealth, they don't want any of that undermined. And so they are trying to prevent the Jews under Ezra and Nehemiah from rebuilding Jerusalem and Judea, the temple, the sacrifices, the wall of Jerusalem. They're trying to prevent all of that. And who's included? The Samaritans. Because it says the wealthy men of Samaria are included here. So now we have another reason for them to be at odds, the Jews and the Samaritans. But it doesn't end there. A further one is something that happened likely about the 300s BC. The 300s BC, after the time, probably shortly after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but after their time, likely around 400 and into the 300s BC, there was a group of Samaritans who believed that only the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, or the Torah, that only those were the Word of God. Everything else in the Old Testament, they believed were not the Word of God, did not come from prophets. Only the Torah of Moses, the Law of Moses. They only believed that. And their collection, their book, is known today as the Samaritan Torah or the Samaritan Pentateuch. Pentateuch meaning a five-fold volume from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Samaritan Pentateuch. So they would believe only in those books, but the Jews in Judea, they believed in all the rest of the Old Testament, just like Ezra and Nehemiah did and all the others of the Old Testament, even late in the period of the Old Testament. They believe Isaiah is a prophet, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of them are prophets, but not the Samaritans. So now we have another reason from the Samaritans to have angst or animosity against the Jews and the Jews against the Samaritans. So all these things are the history and background of why John says here, and even the Samaritan woman says, how is it that you being a Jew ask for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman. Further, further, she calls herself a Samaritan woman. Well, probably because not only was she a Samaritan, but because she was a woman of ill repute, this is probably why she's saying that. That why is it that you're talking to me that you would not be ashamed or even disgusted in talking to me, you are willing to talk to me. She is curious about all this. Now we know how it ends. As we read the rest of the chapter, she ends up believing and she goes back to the city and tells a lot of others and they also believe and they are redeemed. So that ends up happening. But meantime, there's a lesson to learn from verse 9. 
We also, whether we speak English or we speak some other language, whether we live in the United States or live in another nation, whether we're from the, the city or we are from the rural parts of the United States, whether we are from the north of the states or from the south, whether we live on the east coast or whether we live in the middle of America, animosities, conflicts, hatreds arise all the time. Do they not? They arise all the time. So what are we supposed to do? When they arise, what should we do? We have some biases. We have some prejudices all among us. This always happens. What should we do? Certainly, this should be without question. Violence is not the solution to resolving those conflicts. When I say violence, I mean uprisings, chaos, anarchy, mayhem. That should never happen whenever we have a conflict with someone else. Because when we pr uh, promote violence that way, we're doing that which is contrary to Scripture. The Bible does not permit us to do so those kinds of things whenever there are injustices or wrongs one against another. We're not supposed to behave that way. And here's an example of it. Just to use one example of it. Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. In this chapter, from the middle of the chapter, the Apostle Paul healed a slave girl who was possessed with a demon. He healed her, but then the people, her masters, didn't like it. So they created a mob, created chaos and anarchy, and got Paul and Silas to be beaten up and thrown into prison. Beaten up physically and thrown into prison. Well, then the jailer, he comes to believe in the gospel and not only him, but his whole household. Well, then the magistrates who oversaw all this, verse 35, notice what Paul and Silas do with the magistrates. Now, when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, were Paul and Silas mistreated? Should they have been beaten up? No. Should they have been thrown into prison? No. And now, even here, the magistrates want to play hush-hush. Just go away secretly. Now that we know we did wrong, go away secretly. Paul says, no, I don't want to go away secretly. I don't want you policemen to escort us out of the city. I want the magistrates to come for them to take responsibility to acknowledge that they have done wrong to us. And this is the way I want them to acknowledge it. Let them come personally 
and escort us out of the city. And then did Paul leave the city? Yes. And when he left the city, did he leave it in peace? Yes. It says, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, so forth, right? Paul did not order or demand that the jailer or the policemen or the magistrates be beaten up, bruised, killed, murdered. He did not go form a mob to form anarchy and and go back and try to get revenge against the magistrates. He didn't do that. He walked away quietly. Yes, he expected them to have some uh, level of uh, acknowledgement of their guilt and shame. He expected that, but then he went on in peace. They had ample reason to commit violence. So one example in scripture that we should not be committing violence in this way, in a chaotic way with mayhem and things like that. Violence is not permitted. What then if someone from another background, whatever background category we might imagine, whatever background, when someone believes in Christ, what should the church do? What should the body of Christ do? Should we embrace that one or shun him? Should we embrace him or shun him? Obviously, the answer is we should embrace him, correct? Embrace him, and if he lives with you or near you in your area, he should come to the same church as you, right? That's the way it should be. That's why when we read the letters of the New Testament, when we read them, how are they usually written? They are usually written to Jews and Gentiles because Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together in the same church, in the same church. And that's the way it should be. For example, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. After he described our salvation in verses 1 to 10, now he's going to describe how it looks in the church. Okay? 2.11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, meaning the Gentiles in the flesh, so literal Gentiles, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access, have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." He addresses the Gentiles and reminds the Gentiles what marvelous privilege, what marvelous grace they have received. They were uncircumcision, both literally and, and spiritually, they were uncircumcised people. But now they are not separate from Christ anymore, verse 12. They're not excluded anymore. They're not strangers of the covenant and promise anymore. They are not hopeless anymore. They're not without God anymore. So that is a good thing. They didn't have those things. Now they do have them. So we who already have them, what should our attitude be? Well, he says in verse 13 that we are, we are all brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he's our peace. He makes both groups into one. There is no barrier anymore. He abolished the law of commandments, the commandments that he means here, the ritual commandments that the Jews alone would do, but not the Gentiles. He says that doesn't apply anymore, so there's no distinction. You can't say, well, we offer sacrifices, and those people over there, they don't offer sacrifice. They are wrong. You can't say that anymore. Use that as an excuse to keep a barrier or a separation between us and them, because he says in verse 15, we are one new man. We have peace. We are reconciled, verse 16. We are in one body the, because of the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ, when Jesus died for our sin, our sins are put to death there. So when our sins are put to death there, the sin that brings enmity is included. So we have to get rid of enmity. Stop hating people who are different than you. Stop hating them, but be one with them. Peace again, verse 17, for those near and far. The near ones are the Jews, the far ones are the Gentiles. Peace, peace for both. Verse 18, we have, we both have our access in one spirit through Christ to the Father. And we were strangers, we're not strangers anymore. We were aliens, we're not anymore. We are fellow citizens and are a part of God's household. Founded upon the truth of the prophets and the apostles. So, we should be thinking, as long as he believes in the gospel, everything else about him doesn't matter. And we talk about truly believe in the gospel and desires to live his Christian life that way, everything else about him doesn't matter. It's secondary, tertiary. It's not a big deal. So whatever brings us together, it has to be the truth of the gospel itself not any superficial or man-made things that cause separation in people. It is the gospel. We are all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In verse 28, though we are all one in Christ, and he says there's no distinctions anymore, he doesn't mean that those distinctions automatically disappear. He's saying they are irrelevant if we believe in the gospel. The main thing is believing and obeying the gospel of Christ. So, John the Apostle does not have this incident of the Samaritan woman here by accident. He's illustrating how this should be true of all of Christianity throughout all ages until Christ returns. Because one day, there will be men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation before the throne of God. Revelation 7, verse 9. And we'll be a part of that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.